verses 1 through verse 9. The Lord summoned Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any of you bring an offering of livestock to the Lord, you shall bring your offering from the herd or from the flock. If the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, you shall offer a male without blemish. You shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting for acceptance in your behalf before the Lord. You shall lay your hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be acceptable in your behalf as atonement for you. The bull shall be slaughtered before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall offer the blood, dashing the blood against all sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then the burnt offering shall be flayed and cut up into its parts. The sons of the priests of Aaron shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the parts with the head and the suet on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But its entrails and its legs shall be washed with water. And then the priest shall turn the whole into smoke on the altar as a burnt offering, an offering by fire of pleasing odor to the Lord. Let us pray. Lord, use your servants' lips, your people's ears and hearts, that they may be wed, that the seed of your word might be planted and brought forth with a resurrection joy. Amen and amen. I love the first lines of great novels in history. Take, for instance, Herman Melville, Moby Dick. The first line is simply, call me Ishmael. Those of you who are juniors in the Danville school system, you've probably read this next line, F. Scott Fitzgerald, the great Gatsby. In my younger and more vulnerable years, my father gave me some advice that I've been turning over in my head ever since. I love L.P. Hartley. In 1953, the go-between, L.P. Hartley says, the past is a foreign country. They do things differently there. As we've read in Leviticus today, the past is a foreign country. They do things differently in ancient Israel. They th do things differently as the men and women and children who had been released from slavery, set free from captivity, were journeying toward a promised land. The past is a foreign country filled with, with verbiage like this that we, we just looked at. The bull shall be slaughtered before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall offer the blood, dashing the blood against all the sides of the altar that is at the entrance to the tent of meeting. How much more remote, how much further, how much more different can things be than that particular idea of the blood sacrifice of a bull? And yet... We mustn't discount Leviticus entirely because in the same book, in the same part of the Bible that gives us these, these instructions for sacrifice, we find things like this. 
You shall rise before the aged and defer to the old, and you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. Respect for elders, for those who have lived through more than we can imagine, is something that God himself in Leviticus promotes. Or, or how about this? It's not easy to dismiss this. You shall not cheat in measuring length, weight, or quantity. You shall have honest balances, honest weights, and honest ephah, and honest hin. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. When you go and buy a pound and a half of ham from a deli, you don't want to get home with 1.2 pounds. You want honest weights. When you have someone survey the lot on which your house sits, you don't want that person to move the boundary line 10 feet toward your neighbor's. Well, actually, you might want it 10 feet toward your neighbors, but, but you don't want it 10 feet closer to, to you than to your neighbor. There's something about honesty in commerce, honesty in business, honesty and integrity in life that, as strange as Leviticus seems to us, nonetheless speaks truth into our world and into our situation. The Christian interpretation of Leviticus throughout the years has been that it has two different parts. There's the ceremonial part of Leviticus that talks about worship of the Hebrew people, that talks about how the sacrifices are to occur. We don't follow the Levitical ceremonial laws anymore for several reasons. Number one, we're not Hebrews, we're not Jewish. Number two, there's no temple for these sacrifices to occur in. Number three, they're not sons of Aaron to receive the sacrifices of people. Number four, that is the covenant that, that is the old covenant, the first covenant, and we are under the new covenant, the second covenant. But just because we no longer follow the ceremonial laws in Leviticus doesn't mean that we can't or shouldn't seek to follow the moral law, respect for our elders, honesty in commerce, etc., etc. The very first words in the book of Leviticus, the Lord summoned Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, the first words of the book of Leviticus remind us that this system of interacting with God is not Moses' idea. It's not the idea of the children of Israel. It's God's idea. The Lord summons Moses and says, When you approach me, approach me like this. Salvation is God's idea. Reconciliation and wholeness and fullness of life and abundance of life. These are not our ideas. These are God's ideas. And it's God's idea to give us life to the fullest. And it's God's idea to give us the kind of life that is blessed in him 
and that blesses others. God takes initiative to meet our needs. At the very beginning, in the early early narrative of Genesis, we see that God sees that it is not good for the man to be alone, and so he creates someone to be in community with the man. When the man and the woman sin, then we quickly find that they discover their own nakedness, and God in his grace provides clothing for them. God gives humans food to eat. God gives refreshing drink. God gives work that offers a purpose. God gives every good gift that we experience and that we enjoy. Salvation is God's work. Tom read just a few moments ago, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Salvation is God's work. We're not saved because we're strong. We're not saved because we're confident. We're not saved because we are growing. Although we hope in our growth to be strong and to be confident and and to love and to serve and to stand up for truth, but we are saved because while we were still weak, before we got our act together, before we said our first prayer or listened to our first sermon, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Well, what is it exactly that we need as human beings? Um, Those of you who have been in psychology class lately will recognize Maslow's hierarchy of needs at the very bottom are physical needs. We need food, we need water, we need shelter. We need, number two, in the second layer, safety. We need not to be worried all the time about something terrible happening to us. We have psychological needs, esteem needs. We have, in the end, the need to be self-actualized and one of the things that Leviticus does is it, it reminds us that God is involved in all of this. God is involved in, in each of the needs, the need for basic food. God has created a world in which we can plant a seed, and from that seed comes a crop, and from that crop is the fruitfulness that blesses us and feeds our hunger. God has created fish so that when in a small pond 20 or 30 fish get caught before long it's two or three hundred fish until the ecosystem of the pond is is carrying as many fish as it can god multiplies the fish god meets our need for safety when he reminds us that neither life nor death nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor life nor death or anything at all can separate us from the love of god that is in christ jesus god meets our relational needs by saying i want a relationship with you and i want it more than you do 
No matter how deeply you seek God, no matter how fervently you seek the will of God, God is seeking you with more passion and more perseverance than you could ever muster. God is at work in salvation. And salvation is God's work. In the end, at the very top, Maslow says that there are some people who can reach this this self-actualization. Now, there have been a number of criticisms of Maslow's works. Uh, At the very beginning, he spoke of these very much in stages. You can't get to stage three until you've met stages one and two. You can't get to stage four without going through the first three. That's been critiqued, and it's now recognized that, that we can meet several of these at once. We can be in every one of these, one of these stages at once. We can be uh, working on our own basic needs while, while also recognizing that God is loving us to the point at which we can accept the love of others and we can accept the love of God. But there's something to be said there that Maslow himself began to speak toward the end of his career about transcendence. He said, transcendence refers to the very highest and most inclusive or holistic levels of human consciousness. Behaving and relating as ends rather than means to oneself, to significant others, to human beings in general, to other species, to nature, and to the cosmos. As a Christian, as one who believes that God is calling us to the highest good, I would put it this way, that we cannot reach our potential until we have peace with God. We cannot become the men and women that our DNA gives us the possibility, the potential to become until we accept the love and grace of God and live in that love and grace of God. We cannot realize our full potential until we find ourselves at peace with the Lord. And so, here's what Leviticus shows us. Leviticus shows us that reconciliation is God's idea. God speaks to Moses and offers a way that the people of Israel can come to God and have their spiritual and social and physical needs met. It's God's idea. It's not Moses or yours or mine. God wants you to be reconciled with him and with your brothers and sisters around you. Leviticus shows us that God addresses the grand variety of human needs from basic food, of which a tithe was brought to the priests, provided food for the priests in the ancient world, but also showed gratitude that the rain had fallen, that the ground once again had produced grain. God addresses the variety of human needs in that there's such a thing as a thank offering. When something has happened that has been so amazing and so wonderful, you just want to say thank you. One prominent atheist says that one of the things that He envies about Christians 
is that there's someone to thank. That when there is something powerful and beautiful that goes on in his life, he does not have a person to thank. Leviticus shows us that we can be so filled with gratitude that we simply offer a gift to God as a sign of his goodness to us. Leviticus sets up this very interesting moment of sacrifice where a worshiper comes and brings a sacrifice, and the sacrifice's life is then given to God, and the sacrifice itself remains there before the worshiper for some moment. And hear me, suddenly, for a moment, the divine realm and the human realm intersect there at the place of sacrifice where humans offer and God receives. Now, in Christian theology, we find this union, this inexplicable reality that in Jesus Christ we have one who is both fully God and fully human. And we have in the front of our places of worship a table, an altar, if you will, that says, do this in remembrance of me. And we remember that in Jesus Christ, suddenly there is this union between humanity and God, this union between God and humanity as, as Jesus brings God down to this planet Earth and offers the possibility for us to be taken up into the life of God as this divine and this human encounter occur. Leviticus teaches us that there's a crucial link between reconciliation with God and a life that is lived in community. No Israelite thought to worship on his own or her own. Worship was a time when you got together. You got together to give thanks. You got together to ask for pardon. You got together to, to have a party. What's known as a peace offering is very often an excuse for men and women to come and to, to offer a sacrifice before God and then enjoy that sacrifice together. And God's in it all. The life of the individual is caught up in the life of the community. And you and I, as God's people, are offered the opportunity to live in this family of faith together. To share in baptism, in holy communion. To celebrate marriages and to remember the promise of resurrection when those we love have gone to be with the Lord. There's this crucial link in Leviticus between reconciliation with God and life in community. And finally, we remember, we remember about Leviticus and we remember about the gospel that God is faithful to save. God proves his love for us in that while we were Yet sinners, while we were 
still wandering from the path, Christ died for us. God proves his love. Paul goes on to say, well, you know, for somebody who was good, somebody might actually give their life for someone who is good, but God loves us so much that that while we were still sinners, before we had ever turned to God, Christ died for us. That proves God's love. And so as we journey over the next few weeks and this beautiful book of Leviticus, which is as strange as it is beautiful. I don't recommend that you go home and read it while we're talking about Leviticus unless you're having trouble sleeping. If you are, it might be an aid. But if you're the kind of person that likes to take pencil and paper and write down the different kinds of sacrifices and when they're offered, you're the kind of person that, that can look at this and, and, and enjoy the variety of ways that God and humanity interact and how both the law of the Old Testament and the gospel of the New Testament honor that this whole salvation thing is God's idea. It's God's plan. God isn't out to keep us outside the door and to shut it and to lock it. God is out to bring us in. And not only to bring us in begrudgingly, but to bring us in joyfully as sons and daughters of the Most High. God is faithful to save. God is faithful to save. And in the coming weeks, we will see how this salvation plays out both in the Old and the New Testaments. And we'll give thanks to God for his never-failing love. It's true that the past is a foreign country. They do things differently there. But it's also true that human nature and our needs are very much the same as our ancestors 150 years ago and our distant ancestors in faith 2,500 years ago. Salvation is God's idea. He asks only that we respond in faith in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray.